Our scripture this afternoon will be from Luke chapter 23, verses 28 to 49. When you have found it, please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 23, verses 29, 26 to 49. I'm, this is the first time I've been reading without glasses after cataract <laughs> surgery, so I'm like, what are those numbers? Okay. <laughs> and I will be reading from the NIV. As they led him away, that is Jesus, They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women, who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. For the next few weeks, we will be diving in deeply, as as deeply as time allows, 
to these uh, verses, these sections in the Gospel of Luke. You might have noticed tonight the section read is longer than what's listed in your bulletin, and that's because we're kind of breaking up a chain of thought that is natural in the text. And so in order to prevent that as much as possible, we're encouraging you to keep the whole context in mind by reading that broader section. You'll have that read every single week as we gather in worship. But it's important for us as we try to interpret the verses we'll look at tonight, just verse 26 to verse 31, that we will do so in light of all the verses which have just been read and also the verses which come before it as well. All of this is important for not only uh, getting our theology and interpretation right of the text, but not just for that purpose, but for hearing God's message to us clearly from the text of Scripture. And so uh, we will turn our attention to uh, verse uh, 26 through 31 tonight, but again, I forewarn you, uh, it's really part of this broader flow of thought. And that broader flow of thought, you're going to hear this repeated a number of times over the next four weeks, um, is this. Here's, here's the main idea. You can write this down. You don't have to. Jesus is the curse-bearing prophet-priest-king who recreates access to God. So you want to know what verse 26 through verse 49 is all about? That's the main idea for the next four weeks. Jesus is the curse-bearing prophet-priest-king who recreates access to God. And you're going to see that worked out a number of different ways in these sections as we kind of focus in and focus out of the flow of thought. And so I just want to focus tonight on one aspect of that phrase, that Jesus is the prophet who proclaims the coming judgment. So in order for Jesus to be all that he is, we spoke about a number of weeks ago, he needs to be a prophet as well as a king. And his prophetic office is something that he actually exercises, as Luke, Luke brings to our mind often in many ways in which Jesus says, I am a prophet whom you should listen to. You might remember a number of, a number of weeks ago when uh, we went through maybe 15 or uh, 20 places in the Gospel of Luke where you see Jesus' prophetic office uh, anticipated in the Old Testament and then Luke working out that case. Suffice it to say, I hope uh, we won't have time tonight to go back into all those texts, but I'm importing some of those ideas into our conversation tonight, that Jesus is indeed a prophet. And here, you can just look at this text as a microcosm of that prophetic office. So if you look down at verse 28 in the dialogue, what Jesus says to the women, he uses the phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say the mountains fall on us into the hills cover us. This, this language is language that's rooted all throughout the Old Testament prophets to describe the future coming destruction and exile of the people, first in the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom, and later the Babylonian destruction of the southern kingdom. And in fact, some of the text tonight, particularly that language of the mountains falling on us and the hills covering us, is drawn directly out of the book of Hosea. And so Jesus is certainly functioning as a prophet. And you can just see that in these verses. Now, before uh, we get into all of this, you might be wondering why, why take so much time to break up a really unified passage, such as this atonement crucifixion. And the reason is because uh, 
the atonement, the, the crucifixion of Christ and his subsequent resurrection, uh, we, don't, we don't just think it's a real historical event that happened, which many historians would affirm, uh, Tacitus and Josephus and Philo all talk about, a man who led the Jewish people, who, uh, as they would, Josephus would say, led them astray, and was crucified for it, this Christus or Christ, whatever, as they're translating it in their, uh, into Greek. And so they, they speak of this man who was indeed crucified. However, what Luke is arguing for, what Mark and Matthew and John and the New Testament authors like Paul say, is that Jesus wasn't just an apocalyptic prophet who was crucified. That's a historical event. But they come at it from an interpretive lens. They tell you how you should understand his atonement. History, as you know, well, uh, you you might not know this, but history cannot be related to anyone as a bare fact. I can't tell you a bare fact of history without interpreting it for you in some way, shape, or form. And depending on how I interpret that, someone might come by later and disagree with me on that interpretation. But history, the telling of history, is by definition historical interpretation of the events of history. I don't know if you've ever read a Western textbook on U.S. history, maybe in the seventh or eighth grade, or uh, perhaps you like historical biographies, and so you read those kinds of things about historical people. The people who put those books together are doing historical interpretation. They're telling you not just what happens, but also how you might want to think or feel about the things as they happen. For instance, and I'm not commenting on these issues one way or the other, I'm simply naming that they must be commented on. If you consider the Civil War, which is in the United States' own history, history textbooks will often talk about certain battles in the Civil War, which ones they think were the decisive battles, which ones were truly tragic battles. And then they'll also tell you about battles and, and how, the, how the North eventually triumphs over the South and the, and the Union is, is reunited together. Now, if you're, if you're reading a textbook in, in Illinois or in Michigan that talks about the Civil War, that's a pretty accepted narrative of the events of the Civil War. But if you were from one of those southern states that was not so gung-ho or excited about that loss to the Union, uh, those, those history textbooks might say the same things, but there might be a little bit of a different take on the interpretation of those events. And you can even see that in the, in the history of the United States today. You know, if you uh, watch the news at all, you'll know that there are some people who still insist on flying a Confederate flag, not as, not as any other thing than they would say a, a, um, an homage to their own heritage. All I'm saying is, whatever you think about that, there is interpretation happening about the things and symbols as they're perceived. They're not just bare historical facts. What I'm getting at is that the crucifixion is no different. It can't be presented as a bare historical fact. It must be interpreted. So Josephus, when he writes about the crucifixion, interprets it by saying Jesus was a false prophet. And so he was crucified rightly by the Romans because he led our people astray. Even, even the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of documents that comment on the Old Testament and Jewish tradition and practice, the, the Talmud comments about this man named Christus who led our nation into apostasy, they say. And so you, you cannot relate to the crucifixion in Jesus' life as a bare historical fact. And Luke isn't trying to do that either. He's not just giving you, you know, historical takes on things. He's also telling you how should you understand these things. 
That's why we need to slow down because there's a lot of understanding that comes to bear in these verses. For instance, if Luke's take is right, and I'm going to argue that it is, then we should live our lives differently as a result. If Luke's take on Jesus and what's happening in the crucifixion is correct, then, uh, then you cannot go and live your life the same as you did before you knew those, those details. It's not like, um, you know, I, I have a, an, an Apple iPhone, and one of the things that comes standard in the Apple iPhone is you have, you know, apps like Weather, and there's this app that tracks, you know, stock market. How's it, how's it doing? Up or down? All that. Um, th- that information is information I can just look at, and it does not change how I live my life or how I feel or how I function. It's just bare information to me. It doesn't, it's not meaningful. This information that Luke is offering is not meaningless information that is trivial. It's information that actually alters or should alter how you approach life itself. Your, your view of yourself, your view of the world around you, and your view of how the world is going in the future. The crucifixion brings all that to play. Now, I should also mention that even as we focus in on these verses in a larger section, the crucifixion is unintelligible without the resurrection. If you have just a crucifixion but no resurrection, uh, you have a very different understanding of the events. The bodily resurrection of Christ, as we'll come to see in a number of weeks, is just as important as understanding what's going into the crucifixion of Jesus as well. So uh, while we're zooming in now uh, on the crucifixion, just know the resurrection must also be taken with, or else the crucifixion is, I would say, according to Luke, unintelligible. So uh, all that is background preview, why we're slowing down. Now to the matter at hand for tonight. As I said, Jesus is indeed a prophet who proclaims a coming judgment. Now, that's a simple way to say it. And as we go, we're going to add kind of layers to that statement of complexity. But the most simple way to understand Jesus is he comes to talk about this future judgment. And in this case, as we, as we look at uh, these verses, that judgment is, is targeted in some way to God's covenant people. So when Jesus is coming to speak of a judgment, sometimes in the Gospel of Luke, he speaks broadly and generally about the nature of eternity and the condition of every human. And sometimes he goes more narrowly towards the people who are supposed to be in covenant with God, but are ignoring God's warnings to them. So here, when he comes as a a prophet, he comes in judgment against specifically the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, as they exist in his day. And you see that language picked up. Um, because as he goes to the cross, uh, people from Israel are weeping over him, and he says that statement in verse 28, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Why? Because of this coming judgment, which is coming upon you. Now, Luke has several different mentions or times where he, he talks about Jesus speaking of this coming judgment on Israel, but this is not without precedent in, in the history. In fact, Jesus... Uh, has been setting himself up as this one who speaks about judgment and particularly targeting that towards the people of Israel. Uh, You might bring to mind some passages like when he speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests in Luke's gospel, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he goes on to speak about how what they do is wicked. And and as he says, uh, the blood of the prophets is therefore charged against this generation because of your wickedness. That's in Luke chapter 11. Or as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13, 
And he concludes, uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have longed to save you. Your house is left to you desolate or forsaken. So he speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem there as well. Um, But even at the beginning of the gospel, remember Jesus kind of takes over from the message of John the Baptist. And the earliest sermon we have of John the Baptist in, in Luke's gospel is the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. You know, the judgment is impending, therefore, repent and believe. So all of what happens in the Gospel of Luke is set in the context of impending judgment upon God's covenant people. And, you know, I have a lot of verses written out here that I'm not going to make us all go look at, but I'll content myself with just one. Um, In Luke uh, chapter 20, you have that parable of the wicked tenants. Luke chapter 20, verse 9 and following. And you'll remember that parable is something like, hey, you Israelites, remember how you killed the prophets? And then, and then Jesus, God, Yahweh sent you more prophets and you killed them too? Well, here comes the son and here's my prediction, you'll kill him as well. Therefore, uh, what, is the, what is the judgment? It comes in verse uh, 15, the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So here's Jesus in parable form speaking about that impending judgment on not everyone in this case, although that judgment does expand out in that way, as we'll see, but to those who are responsible for having known better, he speaks. He speaks to those people who were actually, had, had God, who God had revealed himself to covenantally. And so he speaks to them as though they have more responsibility to respond. Thus, he speaks to the tenants of the vineyard, not to every person who lives on the earth. He speaks narrowly to those who are responsible. And so Jesus is, is, has this message of, of judgment. And you might say, this is very much sounding doom and gloom. And we'll get to the positive end of that. But we can't get to the positive aspects of this message until we actually deal with the message itself. Okay? And we, what we can't do with Jesus is simply say, well, Jesus is, is coming to show his love for humanity. Yes, but he's doing so in a context of rebellion and rejection and sin, which must be understood. For instance, in Luke 19, when, uh, when Jesus is talking about his mission on earth, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. But that is in the context of, you know, what, what precedes it and what follows it, about the people rejecting that Son of Man and ultimately going to crucify him, and therefore him coming in judgment on them as well. So the message of Jesus is not universal salvation of all people regardless of how they respond, but a salvation of a particular people because it's offered to a particular people. It's a salvation which is, we might say, actionable in some sense. There's a response that is required of those who hear this message. So Jesus has this kind of message of judgment. Now, he does that with a whole lot of Old Testament precedent as well. So one of the first books that we covered as a, as a church when we were first beginning to gather in worship uh, was the book of Hosea. We, uh, we went through that book uh, now a number of years ago. And the whole book of Hosea, if you remember back with me, or if you weren't there, maybe you're familiar with the book of Hosea. The whole message of Hosea is Hosea speaking to the people of Israel, particularly the northern kingdom, and saying, you have prostituted yourselves out to other gods. You worship idols. You are an adulterous woman, a a faithless wife to the Lord your God. So what? 
So, so God will destroy you for your faithlessness and, and there's a coming restoration of a remnant of you which he will then once again woo you and wed you to himself in an everlasting marriage which shall not be forsaken. So the whole message of Hosea is judgment, 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 hope of restoration, and he'll cycle through that a couple of times. I think like three or four times throughout the course of the book. And Jesus is no different. He's, he's coming as a prophet of judgment with echoes or hopes of future restoration, which actually becomes much more pronounced in the book of Acts when we see that how the apostles preach about the restoration and forgiveness offered by Jesus. But there's all kinds of allusions to it even in the Gospel of Luke. For instance, Jesus saving Zacchaeus or forgiving a woman of her sins who uh, is considered unclean by, by many. Uh, you have this note of hope that Jesus is also bringing. But w- we would say the dominant drumbeat is one of hopeless rejection of, of, our, of Jesus. Uh, and he, he kind of takes a, a page out of, particularly the prophet Jeremiah, who is, he writes, Jeremiah writes both Jeremiah and Lamentations in the Old Testament. And uh, if you've ever read the prophecy of Jeremiah or the book of Lamentations, it's not just like kind of doom and gloom. It's basically entirely hopeless with a couple of verses of potential future hope. And Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet, the one who is sorrowful and lamenting about his whole people, his, his nation. And it's from the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations where we get the language that Jesus uses in the text tonight. Okay, so Jesus on the way to the cross, to the crucifixion. There's this man named Simon of Cyrene who's mentioned uh, kind of as a historical figure. Uh, Mark makes more clear that Simon of Cyrene is actually in some ways connected to the early church by means of his children. And so it is, it is likely the case that Luke's giving you a note of when Simon came into contact with Jesus on his way to the cross. So Simon comes, he's, he's forced to help Jesus carry the cross, probably because Jesus is weak from the beatings, or, or possibly because the Romans wanted to speed up the process of crucifixion. So either one of those is possible. The text simply tells us he helps him to carry the cross. And on this way outside of the city, outside of the people, outside of God's holy city, There's these women who walk behind Jesus, a great multitude of people, and specifically women who are mourning over Jesus, this situation. It's not clear if these are women who perhaps follow Jesus and are sorrowful over the condition in which he's in, or if these are women who are simply Israelite women who would have responded, it was very customary for people to weep communally together for sorrowful situations, even if they weren't necessarily closely connected. And it's in that context that Jesus says to them this this language. He addresses them as the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, that's not abstract language. It's drawn specifically from Jeremiah and Lamentations. And there's a lot of cross-references, but I'll, I'll, I'll just quote one scholar as he tries to pull all these details together. He says the phrase, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion, daughter of Judah, and daughter of my people, is used in some way, shape, or form in both Jeremiah and Lamentations, 12 and uh, Jeremiah 12 times, Lamentations 17 times. And he says the context of that, of that quotation is almost always negative with a tone of judgment. So as Jesus addresses these women as daughters of Jerusalem, he's doing so because he's importing this judgment motif from Jeremiah and from Lamentations about the condition of a people who are, who are unrepentant of their sins. 
while, the, while they are weeping externally, Jesus actually wants them to, to weep appropriately. Order their weeping in the correct direction. Have, have an appropriate target for their weeping. So he says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Because that's who the judgment is coming upon. So then he speaks of the judgment, the day when these women will say, blessed are the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. That's a, a way of saying the commonly considered blessing for an Israelite woman would have been a, a life fruitful with many children. In fact, the, Luke opens us with a story of an Israelite woman who's barren, and she's heartbroken over it. Her and her husband uh, have been wanting a child for years, and it's considered a, a desolate situation to not have children. So Jesus is saying at some point in the future, the situation is going to get so bad that you're actually going to think the women who have never had children will in some way be blessed. And the women that did have children will in some way be, uh, will be worse off. Why? Because if you suffer and you have to see suffering, not only you, don't only you don't only have to experience it yourself, but you have to see your loved ones, particularly your children, go through such a suffering, uh, wouldn't it be better than to have never had those relationships to begin with? So here's the dire coming judgment on the people. And as history would tell us, when the Romans come and they destroy the Judean countryside and ultimately siege the city of Jerusalem, one of the unfortunate reported uh, events is that some women who were in that siege actually ate their children to survive the siege, to survive and, and persist. And so these words are not abstract, vain language. He's, he's quite, quite uh, mournful over the situation which they will find themselves in. And this is, this is coming in a context where Israel has rejected their God for generations now of external but not heartfelt obedience. And thus, the judgment comes. And that judgment uh, brings with it the, this, this uh, idea of, why, would it be better that I had never lived or would it be better that I just die right now? Such you get the language of having the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us, which means I would just rather have the mountain collapse on me and end this suffering rather than continuing to persist in it. It's a mournful uh, judgment that Jesus is proclaiming. In the whole context, in verse 31, it's a hard to interpret phrase that Jesus uses, but it probably refers to his suffering in connection with the people of Israel's future suffering. So he says, if they, for if they do these things when the wood is green, it's not clear who that they are, possibly Rome. If Rome is willing to do this when the wood is green, meaning to an, uh, uh, a young, ripe tree, uh, one that would not easily be burned, something like that, what will, they, what will happen when it is dry? So you have Jesus, the innocent, suffering servant, who's being judged or killed by Rome, and he's contrasting himself with uh, as one who is not fittingly judged right now because of his innocence, he's contrasting that with the future judgment which is coming upon Israel, who is dry wood, ready to be burned, ready to be judged. So he's saying, don't weep for yourselves, or don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, because if Rome is willing to do this to an innocent person, uh, what, what will happen to those who are not innocent and who have participated in this, this wickedness? There's some debate about uh, what that phrase means. I think that's probably the most... Uh, clear way to under, understand it. But regardless of, uh, regardless of what you make of that phrase, 
the thrust of this whole section is pretty clear. Jesus has this message of judgment. And it's not a, a fun message. You might be right now thinking, how much longer are we going to be talking about this judgment before we get to the other parts of this? So Jesus comes with this message, and now that we have the message before us, well, we can do a whole lot of things with that in trying to understand how are we supposed to think about this from the Gospel of Luke. The first thing I would point out is that we should not shy away from this message of judgment. In the West, particularly in the context in which we live in the, with our modern sensibilities and modern understanding of the world and how it works, we have a kind of aversion to speaking about God's wrath, God's judgment, God's anger, or in any kind of way where we might fear that someone might hear that God is angry with them. Even though, often that's quite an appropriate way to speak about God's relation to a sinful and rebellious humanity. And so when Jesus is on the way to the cross, it's interesting that the encouragement does not come at the first turn. Uh, often, you know, when you hear about the crucifixion, everyone hits the point where you'll see, uh, we'll talk about it next week, where Jesus asks his father to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, it's amazing to me that in our modern context, everyone remembers that part of the crucifixion, and we, we drown out or dull out the part where the crucifixion is set in the context of a judgment on the people of Israel. And I think that's because in the West, we shy away from that message. You think about... Uh, he, hearing the gospel uh, preached, or if you've ever had someone talk to you on the street and either you shared the gospel with them or possibly they shared the gospel with you, um, it is unfortunately, I think, rare for wrath, judgment, anger, uh, the, the righteous zeal of God to come out in those conversations. It's not totally absent. There are many people who do, in fact, hit on those notes. But we often have an aversion to that kind of thing. In fact, even in Western songs that we sing in church, there was, there's been controversy about, do we frame the atonement in light of God's wrath, or do we more so frame the atonement in light of his love and his grace and his mercy? Now, that's actually putting to odds things that are not at odds with one another. But Americans don't want to dismiss the love-mercy part. We're often much more quick to delete and remove or stop singing the verses that talk about the wrath. So that's why I'm hitting more heavily on that. So we, cannot, we should not shy away from this message of destruction because... The pain of that message and the weeping that it brings is actually a good thing. It's actually a blessing. Uh, there are some of those born uh, in the world. It's a relatively rare condition. But some people are born with what's called chronic insensitivity to pain. Have you ever heard about this condition, those of you in the medical field? or uh, Sometimes it's featured on like, shows like Grey's Anatomy and stuff where everyone has a rare medical condition. But this is a truly rare medical condition. And the people who suffer from it... They have, no, uh, they have no ability to feel pain at all. So not just like pain on the external, outside part of their body, but they can't feel pain internally. They can't, uh, they can't feel pain in any way, shape, or form. So they must manually check themselves for cuts, bruises, damage of all kinds, because they don't have the, the ability to sense pain. So if you, uh, let's say, bite your lip while you're eating food, you feel that. It's painful. If you burn your mouth while you're eating food, you feel that. It's painful. You touch something hot, you feel that, it's painful. You pull your hand away. Imagine if you did not have the ability to feel pain. At first, you might think, oh, that would be great because, you know, sometimes my body hurts and my back aches and 
I wish that if I burned my hand, I wouldn't feel the pain of that. It's actually not a great thing because the people who have this condition may have like an average lifespan of 25 years old because their body just sustains damage and they can't pick up on it and eventually it leads to a shortened lifespan. If we, if we take the message of hurt and pain out of, the sting out of the gospel message, we're, we're circumnavigating a necessary part of that message. The same way that someone who doesn't have the ability to feel pain is circumnavigating a very natural need in human anatomy to feel pain and therefore appropriately respond to that pain. To think about it in a different way, um, those who have ever suffered from hypothermia and have almost died from hypothermia, there's this really interesting phenomenon. So when you first outside freezing and you have no way to warm yourself, you'll shiver and shake and you'll feel cold right down to the bone. But actually, eventually, if the shivering persists and you're not getting any warmer, the body will begin to shut down those mechanisms. You'll stop shivering. And then you'll feel actually warm all of a sudden. And some of the people who have been rescued from that brink of death moment will say, actually, when you were rescuing me, I didn't really feel like going anywhere. I felt rather peaceful and calm. And, and it's actually very painful to, to warm them back up. It, it, it hurts. It, it, causes, it causes great pain as their nerves re, reintegrate to normal human temperatures and they begin to feel pain again. Freezing to death is in some sense uh, another example of this phenomenon where pain is actually a good and necessary thing that when it's removed, uh, actually disaster results because you can't respond appropriately to things you don't feel. So we, we can't respond appropriately to the gospel message if we don't feel the pain and the, and the weeping of it that we need to feel. The reason I, 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 I like the example of that freezing to death is because that's a lot like Israel where they initially, when they're first in their condition of sin, they're initially pretty responsive to God. They can, they can feel their sin, they can see it, they can perceive it, and they can respond. Think about Israel in the time of Moses. And then you have Israel in the time of David as well, where they, are, they seem relatively receptive to the oracles of God. Nathan the prophet has a, a pretty fruitful ministry calling Israel to repentance. So Israel responds appropriately, but eventually their condition of sin sets in and they begin to stop feeling so bad about sin. The shivering eventually stops. They eventually begin to become complacent with the sin in their environment. And they, then they start feeling not so bad about it anymore. This is also like uh, Christians who uh, persist in an ongoing way in sin. A Christian can sear their conscience. And things which should cause them pain and mourning and guilt cease to. Not because those things are any less heinous or less wicked, but simply because the ability to feel pain that is normal for the, for the Christian conscience begins to be deadened by continued exposure to sin. What repentance does, it warms our hearts back up through that pain and agony of weeping to be rightly responding to our sin as we experience it. So we must, we must not shortchange this message. In fact, to listen appropriately to this message of judgment is necessary for us to be able to respond appropriately to this message. It's kind of the whole idea of the pain that we need to feel. So as Christians, we, well, what do we do? Every Sunday, and, and some of us have the habit of every morning and evening trying to be in the word or in prayer, every Sunday we gather to 
sing worship songs together, to pray together, to hear the word preached together, so that we can warm our hearts and orient our affections to rightly respond to God, to be in tune with his voice and his Holy Spirit, that when he tells us you should not be doing this, or you should feel, you should feel constrained to not do that, we can respond appropriately. And as our love, our, our, our affection for him increases, we actually become increasingly deadened to and disaffectionate towards sin. But the opposite is also true. If our activity in sin increases, we become increasingly deadened to Christ. To persist in sin is to begin to drown out the voice of God. It's to begin to deaden ourselves to being appropriately responsive. And eventually you become like that person who's freezing to death, on the brink of death, but feeling in no way in danger, and actually at a, at a great deal of peace with your condition. This is the condition we find the religious leaders of Israel in. These are the people who know enough and, and, and should be responding to God in weeping and repentance for all they know. And yet, because of their repeated exposure and rejection of their own need for redemption, you find them so deadened to sin, so deadened that they can't even see the Savior when he shows up before them. But Christian, don't think that that cannot happen to you as well. It is possible for a Christian to go into sin to such a condition that they're all the way dead to responding appropriately to their own sin. But us listening appropriately does not stop with us just understanding intellectually. It also leads us to responding. And that's what Jesus says here in the text. Uh, if you were to hear his message of judgment correctly, your weeping would be turned to actually for yourself. As he says, for the women, for, for them and for their children, they are to weep. And uh, this is true of, of many of the, the Puritans. They speak about God and our affection for him causing us to weep over our sin for our lack of holiness. We as Christians must cultivate our, our ability to weep. And I don't at this point mean, although it's not exclusive of, I don't at this point mean just external weeping and sadness. I mean a, a true heartfelt weeping over sin. In fact, these women are weeping aloud and Jesus says, actually, that's not quite what I have in mind. Judas, after betraying the Lord, weeps. It does not cause him to repent. Saul, after he hears his kingdom will be stripped from him, weeps. Uh, but it in no way, shape, or form changes the trajectory of his life. Uh, Esau, after he is, uh, finds out he doesn't have the covenantal blessing because he sold it, he weeps. But he does not in any way change his conduct and repent. True weeping actually will terminate us, this is going to sound strange, in worship. So right, right weeping over sin, right weeping, will actually turn our affections towards God and therefore when our affections are oriented towards God, it will, it will cause us to glory in his grace. As we read Psalm 51 uh, today for the pastoral prayer, uh, just excerpts from it, you'll notice David starts with weeping and terminates with worship for the forgiveness of God. Similarly, Paul in Romans 7, wrestling over his own sinfulness, says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. True weeping, heartfelt weeping, is not navel-gazing. It actually orients us towards the one whom we are supposed to respond to rightly in worship. 
If I give you uh, just one example of this phenomenon from uh, the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of various Puritans in their prayers, the prayer starts off in this way. I have sinned times without number and be guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find your mind in your word, of neglect of seeking you in my daily life. That's how the prayer starts. Here's how it closes. Deliver me from every evil habit, every accreditation of former sin, everything that dims the brightness of your grace in me, everything that prevents me from taking delight in you. Then I will bless you, God of Jerusalem, for helping me to be upright. And this is a confession of sin. The whole, like 70% of it is weeping over sin, but it terminates in worship. This is what appropriate weeping does. It, it terminates in worship. And we cannot reap, weep rightly over our sin and terminate on ourselves. Uh, appropriate weeping must blossom into recognition of the forgiveness and ultimately the grace and therefore responding in worship to our God. So we have to listen to Jesus' message. We must be cut by it, which causes us to weep appropriately. That weeping causes us to respond rightly in worship. And well, as we see in the New Testament, that worship cannot be contained. It actually goes out into proclamation of this, of this message. So that when Jesus says this message to the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, you should weep for yourselves, uh, we see later in the book of Acts, as the apostles preach about this message, uh, they cannot contain themselves to tell people, for example, Peter in Acts, Acts 2, uh, you crucified Jesus. Let's not, get, let's not mince words here. You crucified him. So what should you do? Repent and believe. Repent and seek him for forgiveness. And therefore, what happens? A great host of people comes to salvation because they were cut to the heart and they can respond to the message. So it is true in Christian life as well. If you weep over your sin and you cultivate that weeping, uh, if you are a new Christian, that weeping is something you're probably used to, uh, especially when you're first becoming a Christian. You're aware of your sin. You're aware of your sinfulness in a great uh, number of ways. And in that early phase of your uh, Christian walk, it's very common for you to find it very easy and freeing to speak about the gospel and speak about God's mercy. If you don't continue to cultivate that sense of need within you, something can happen very quickly is the longer you uh, are a Christian, the less free you feel sometimes to speak about the grace of God freely. At this point, I'm not speaking about apologetic defense of the faith or anything like that. I'm simply speaking about expressing to people the joy that you have for having been forgiven. The New Testament does not lay the burden upon uh, every single Christian to be a subject matter expert in apologetics or in uh, textual criticism or ancient Near Eastern manuscripts, uh, uh, how the manuscripts are passed on. Christians don't need to do that. We're, we are called, though, to give a defense for the hope which lies within us. So for some Christians, this proclamation, after, after restoration of worship, that proclamation goes out in a very full-time public sense. Some Christians dedicate their life to proclaiming the message of grace of the gospel. Think about men like Billy Graham or Paul Washer or some people who come to mind uh, Lottie Moon is a missionary who they dedicate their lives to this endeavor. But every Christian has a true call to proclaim in some way or another the message of the joy that they have in Christ. So that as you go into your workplace or as you go into your families or as you go to your friends or neighbors, uh, that you're not really restrained. You're actually very free to speak about your joy, your hopefulness, your 
uh, excitement over the forgiveness that you have. They ask you, what did you do this weekend? You're very excited to tell them about going to church and singing songs of praise to God. And that, that is sometimes very strange to people who don't have that as a normal part of their life. But this is what all Christians are called to do. So when we hear Christ's message rightly, we listen to it, we weep appropriately, this weeping leads us to worship, and ultimately that worship leads us to external proclamation of the message. So you can see then why it's important that we don't distort that message at all. Because to distort the message means you also distort and actually remove entirely the joy that's at the end of that message. The weeping is actually a part of our initial coming to faith in Christ and our ongoing joy and delight in Christ, as strange as that might sound. But Christians, mature Christians, actually walk this balance out very well. Both sorrow over sin and joy in the Lord for his grace. And you Christians, I call to, to that as well. To actually cultivate your need for Christ, your need for his grace, and then to experience right on the back end of that the joy that is found in him for recognizing that he is the one who rescues us from our condition of sorrow and weeping. And I want to encourage you, when you are sharing about this message, you should not feel apprehensive. You might still feel apprehensive, but you should not feel apprehensive about telling people that there is real judgment for sin. Because the message actually doesn't stop there, but this is a necessary part of the message. Because you can't get people to understand the joy of Christ if they don't understand their need for Christ. You, you can't, uh, these women, the daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus, he seems to be convinced that they won't actually understand what he's doing on the cross unless they understand that they should weep for themselves. And so too it is, even today as the gospel goes forward, weeping is a necessary part of that process. Not just to get into that kingdom, but also to abide in that kingdom, that we make a habit of confession of sin and therefore a habit of worshiping Christ for his forgiveness of us. Well, this is just a part of what's going on in the atonement. You can see why it's probably wise for us to have slowed down and not done one three-hour-long sermon through this whole text. But what this does in the Gospel of Luke, how this is functioning, is it's getting us towards that main idea that as we understand what's happening on the cross, we do so in light of our need for that cross. If, if we are to rightly understand the cross, Luke seems it important to include that weeping on the way to the cross is important for understanding the cross. And that weeping is not something that can be removed from this message in any way. And so Christian, as you confess your sin before the Lord, weep and weep well. And also remember that he has forgiven you as a concrete act in history past. And therefore, your weeping turns to joy and your mourning toward, turns to rejoicing and your sorrow turns to great and glorious worship. Let's pray. Lord, you have done a mighty and marvelous work of salvation to save us from sin, to, to sanctify us in your word. Lord, that you, would ha you have been pleased by your spirit to make us aware of our sinfulness, our need for you. Oh, Lord, what, what joy there is in surrender to your salvation. What, what joy there is in knowing that we are a great, great sinful people and you are a saving God. 
Lord, there is such joy to be had in knowing that our sin has been dealt with. Lord, we pray that you would make us more aware of that. Would you impress upon our hearts our sinfulness so that we can be impressed by your grace and your gracious forgiveness of us. We ask and we pray all together in Christ's name. Amen.